First Kings chapter 16 this evening. In our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. Just get their attention. They'll get one into your hands and be fairly lost on Sunday evening without a Bible to follow along with. We do cover a little bit of territory on the Sunday evenings. First Kings chapter 15. We stopped at uh, verse 24 last week at the end of uh, Asa's reign, and he reigned 40 plus years in the southern kingdom of Judah and was a good king. So that was a good four decade stretch uh, for them. But now as there's that back and forth between God's uh, narrative related to the southern kingdom of Judah and then switching over to give us what was happening uh, at the same time in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, um, uh, that happens in verse 25. Now, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel. So we go to the north now. And he became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, And he reigned over Israel for two years. He is no better than his father. Here's the assessment that God makes of his life. He did uh, evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. And so he didn't change what his father, the wickedness that his father had brought uh, among God's people. He just uh, continued that. And then Baasha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, he conspired against Nadab. And Baasha killed him at Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines. It was actually uh, Israel uh, territory, a Levite city that the Philistines had taken um, uh, captive. And so there was a battle that uh, was in, in an effort to recover that. And so it belonged to the Philistines while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to uh, Gibeathon. And so while this battle was going on and endeavored to regain this city, uh, he is assassinated by Baasha. And Baasha killed him in the third year of uh, Asa, king of Judah, and then he reigned in uh, Nadab's place. And so it was that when he became king, that he killed all of the house of Jeroboam. And that's what they would do in those days. So this isn't a son killing a father for the throne. This is another bloodline that is being introduced. So he kills uh, Nadab, a descendant of Jeroboam. God had prophesied that Jeroboam and his, that his descendants would be utterly cut off uh, from the earth. And so here is Baasha. He comes in, makes a power play. Uh, by assassination to rule the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And then knowing that having killed uh, him, that all of his blood relatives would now come and try and kill him as a result and all. So what he does is he takes care of that as kings did in those days when they overthrew another king. They killed all of the male heirs of the king. And so he did and he did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Now, God, in his foreknowledge, knew that all of the descendants of Jeroboam 
would be killed and that they would die because of the wickedness, not only of Jeroboam, but of his all of his descendants as well. The fact that Baasha steps up and does the killing, uh, God is going to condemn him for that later. Just because God knows something is going to happen in his foreknowledge, when it does happen, it doesn't mean that he had a part in it. So God had prophesied that this event was going to happen, uh, but he uh, that but in Baasha coming into reign, it wasn't God's intention that he would take and kill all of the descendants. We'll see that uh, later in chapter 16, verse seven. And so he wiped out all of these uh, descendants because the sins of the sins of Jeroboam, verse 30, which he had sinned and by which he made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. And so this was uh, God was displeased with that uh, bloodline, displeased with with their wickedness. And uh, God had determined that they would ultimately be destroyed. But Baasha was not to take it into his own hands under uh, the motivation of selfish ambition and to do that himself. Now, the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of, chronic, of the Chronicles of the Kings of uh, Israel? And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all of their days. So hostility between these uh, all of them Jews, but fighting one against the other, uh, each of them, you know, serving in their idolatry and all of these things. The thing that kept the, them united beyond their blood was the worship of the Lord. But um, at this time, the northern kingdom of Israel has thrown all of that off. The southern kingdom of Judah is following the Lord at that time. And so there's this conflict uh, between them. And in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel uh, in Terza, which was the capital uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he reigned for 24 years. So God, he reigns. God gives him 24 years to repent uh, of, of the wickedness that the northern kingdom of Israel was doing, but he didn't repent. He walked in, in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel to sin. So he comes in and he kills Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, and the fact that he continued to do the very same thing Nadab was doing and any of, of the other descendants of jo, uh, 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 Jeroboam would have done in the idolatry, the worshiping of the golden calves indicated that he had killed this man out of power and not out of any kind of a righteous indignation to turn the northern kingdom of Israel back to God. He would have lived an entirely different life if his uh, motives were uh, were, you know, you know, kind of reformed in in their thinking of, of bringing reformation to uh, to the, the sinful a nation. Chapter 16. And then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of uh, Hanani, and, and uh, it's going to be a word, a prophecy against Baasha, uh, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust, Baasha. So he evidently came from very uh, humble 
uh, background, made you a ruler over my people Israel. And you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins. Surely I will take away the uh, posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The sons, uh, the dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city. The birds of the air will eat whoever dies of his descendants out uh, in the field. And so uh, God comes to him and, and speaks to him uh, about the fact that he was continuing in the same sin of Jeroboam, though he knew that God's judgment was on Jeroboam and uh, and he didn't change on that. There's a funny thing, uh, a phrase that's used in the New Testament, and it refers to the deceitfulness of. Of sin, and in short, what it what it means is that sin lies, and the sin tells a lot of lies. But one of the sin, one of the lies that sin tells us, is that while sin is wrong in somebody else's life, while it doesn't look good in somebody else's life, we're different. We can handle that sin. Uh, we can engage in that sin. And God will look at it differently in our eyes than how he looks at, at it in somebody else's life. And that's not true at all. And so God comes in and said, listen, you're doing the, you're doing the same thing as Jeroboam did. And I, and I pronounced judgment upon his bloodline. And how did you think I was going to be now pleased with what you're doing? Just because you've got a different name and a different bloodline. And so he pronounces the fact that, Baasha is not going to his his descendants are not going to be rulers over Israel for any kind of significant length of time. And when it talks about the dogs eating, uh, eating whoever belongs to Baasha, verse four and dies in the city, the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. It talks about the fact that they're going to die a violent death. And uh, and then having died a violent death, there isn't going to be anybody that even cares that they all died. And nobody will even bother giving them a burial. And so it was a very, very great insult in that Jewish culture for a person to die and then a burial not to be given immediately related to the deceased. And so the fact that all of his descendants would just die and rot in the field meant that people, it was like good riddance. We're, uh, this is no great loss for us as a nation, and we don't want to be associated with your sin or with the wickedness of your family, even in burying them. Now, the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings uh, of Israel? And so Baasha rested with his fathers, was buried in Terza, and then Elah, his son, uh, reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against ba Baasha and his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. And so uh, God repeats this about three times in terms of this is what I... Think about uh, Baasha. This is this is a judgment that's coming upon him uh, because sometimes uh, I, God uses repetition, uses a lot of repetition in the Bible. But 
Jesus, you know, he in our prayers, he warns us against or he cautions us away from vain repetition. God never is vain in his repetition. It's not emptiness. He's not just repeating himself to talk, uh, to repeat himself in the Bible. He repeats himself. He always gets my attention when he repeats himself. Because it must, I look at it and say, this must be something that we just like get glazed eyes and our mind, you know, thinks about um, getting an ice cream cone or something and we just let it go in one, one ear and out the other. Uh, but God is driving home a point here in this repetition that this is very, very uh, serious to him. And so the judgment that came upon him, and then, as he said, uh, not only because of his sin at the end of verse seven of committing the same sins as the house of Jeroboam, but because he also killed them. And uh, God had not intended that uh, he would take that into his hands. Verse eight in the 26th year of Asa. So uh, king of Judah, Elah, then now the son of Baasha becomes king over Israel. And he reigns now for two years in Terza. Now, he, he had a servant by the name of Zimri, who was commander of half his chariots. Now, that would have been a very, very high position in his military. Uh, to it'd be like to be over half of the air force today. I mean, to be over the chariots, that was a position that you gave to your best people in battle. And so he had a servant, uh, Zimri, who was over half of his uh, chariots, powerful man. And this Zimri conspired against him, uh, against uh, Elah, as he was in Terza, drinking himself drunk. Do you love the Bible? Just, I love clarity. So the guy's just in the capital and he's just a good for nothing drinking himself drunk. I mean, what kind of a king is this that that he's got? So he's basically a good for nothing and he's doing it in the house of, of ours. You don't want you don't want leaders of a country, much less the highest leader, to spend all their time getting drunk. So apparently this characterized his life. And uh, so he was doing it in the house of Arza, who was steward of his house in Terza. So this is his legacy there in verse nine, bringing himself drunk. By the way, God will change that in any human life, I'm happy to say. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. And then he reigned in his place. And then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all of the household of Baasha. And he did not leave one male uh, alive that was a, an heir of Elah, neither any of his relatives that could be a Goel or a kinsman redeemer that would be compelled by the law of Moses now to kill him for killing a blood relative. And this guy just is very, very thorough. He doesn't take any, any chances at all. He kills all of his friends as well. So that he so he wants to be king again, selfish ambition here in becoming the king. And he's just going to kill anyone that might be upset with this decision. And and so just as God had prophesied would would happen in his foreknowledge here, exactly that happened. And thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken against Baasha by uh, Jehu, the prophet. I'm glad that as a Christian, the promises that are ours are considerably better than what these guys are getting from God. But God's word is going to be true, whether in blessing or in judgment. 
I'll either know him as Lord or I'll know and Savior or I'll know him as judge. And I'm glad to be on the Lord and Savior side of, uh, of things because of faith in Christ. And uh, so, but God's word is always going to be true. That's why you want to be on the right side of God's word. So all of it came to pass for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of uh, Elah, his son, by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. God is really upset with these kings. He's really upset with idolatry. He's upset in, in the whole Old Testament with false prophets and anyone that would rise up and lead his people away from him. God views his children, his people, both Old Testament and New Testament, as his children. How would you like to have someone come into your house? Well, not even into your house. How would you like to have someone come and kidnap one of your children and take them away from you? I mean, that kind of thing would set us off in a panic as we would search for our child and where are they and if I get my hands on whoever is done and all of this kind of thing. And God looks at it and that's how he viewed it. How dare these men rise up and kidnap his own children from God Almighty. And so this really upset him. And, and so this judgment on them as they would do that. It's a serious business to take people's eyes, people, the eyes of God's people off of God and draw them to himself and, and then much less to draw them uh, into idolatry. And so this judgment came upon them. Now, the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And in the 27th year of Asa, so Asa up north, I mean, down south in Judah, they're just humming along 40 great years, walking with God and everything up in the north. Man, every couple of years, things are turning over. So in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terza for seven days. So that's how long uh, he he reigns here. It's a pretty short reign. And the people were encamped against uh, Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines. So they're endeavoring to capture, recapture this city. Word gets to them on the front of the battlefield that Zimri had conspired and has assassinated the king. And uh, so all Israel, they meet, made Omri, the, the commander of the army that was a, doing a part of the battle, they made him king over Israel that day in the camp. And so the people, they hear about this assassination, Zimri elevating himself to become king. They reject him as, as king. They reject his self-promotion and they make Omri king and commander-in-chief. In and so when they hear that news, they say to themselves, Zimri is not an acceptable uh, candidate for king, even over a nation in as bad shape as this nation is in. And so uh, the can acceptable candidate for the throne was Omri. And so they uh, then uh, broke off and uh, marched back to the capital to take care uh, of business in this attempt at, at, at the throne. It's interesting to, again, as we look at um, Asa, and he's down in the south of Judah. He did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, for 40 years, and everything's just peaceful and quiet. He made some mistakes, as we saw last week. But in general, a great influence upon the nation, and they're doing very, very well. Uh, and the Bible says that, uh, in the book of Proverbs, righteousness 
exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. So they've returned back to the word of God. They've returned back to obeying the word of God. At least that was the influence in the culture. Not everybody walked with God and Judah at that time. But that was the standard that was put forth was the, the word of God. And so there's this long period of stability because of a godly king and a godly influence in the southern kingdom of Judah. Up north in, uh, in the, uh, Israel there, it, it, during that same period of time, it's just a long series of very short reigns, assassinations, violence, and till finally you have someone that's elevated himself and he's a king for a mere seven days. The whole northern kingdom of Israel is, is being, coming destabilized. Uh, and you could look at it and say, well, it's because of this or this or this. At its core, it had become destabilized because of its apostasy away from God. Again, righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah at this time were a perfect example of that proverb. It is so important for us as Christians to be salt and light. In the culture that God has put us in, and that culture is the United States of America. And to be righteous in our own lives, to carry the gospel. The gospel is the surest way to change a human life and take them out of the unrighteous category, not only positionally, but practically, where their whole life changes and now they're no longer an influence for evil, but now they're an influence for God in the world. So we carry that gospel. But we also need to make a stand in our own personal lives and and look and say right is right and wrong is wrong according to the word of God. And by the grace of God, I am going to commit myself to being an influence for righteousness in the workplace or the school or the neighborhood or the city or the church that I belong to and, and to make that commitment uh, to that in a commitment not to be an influence in any way for unrighteousness, because it's interesting what happens here. And it's one of my favorite sections of, of the whole Bible because of how it influences me as I process the news on a daily basis in the United States of America. And you, you see, you can't have in any nation, you can't have what's happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. You can't have every generation becoming more unrighteous than the previous generation, more sin addicted than the previous generation. That trend cannot go on indefinitely because that nation will ultimately destabilize head in the civil war, maybe self-destruct and cease to exist. The northern kingdom of Israel and ultimately the southern kingdom of Judah, because they will ultimately all turn away from God. We're talking about God's people. And they will worship Baal, they will worship those golden calves, they will engage in idolatry and all of the sexual immorality and the wickedness and the unrighteousness and, and the enslavement of other people, the, the abuse of power. All of these things will go on and on and on until in the last days of both of those kingdoms, mothers ate their babies 
I mean, it's horrifying as you move into Isaiah, as you move into Jeremiah, as you move into Ezekiel. And God talks and He says, here are these women that just months earlier, they minced their feet and they walked around like they were really something. And they had on all their jewelry and their fancy clothes and everyone looked at them as unbelievably refined. And this is what they would always be. But they weren't that. They looked cultured on the inside, but uh, on the outside, but on the inside, they had given themselves to sin for so long. They were monsters, not on the basis of outward appearance, but they were monsters on the basis of their sin and their apostasy from God. And God spoke to him and said, you look like this in terms of an outward appearance, but you will eat your children before this is all said and done. Righteousness within a nation, God's righteousness, his standard of right and wrong. Once that goes and that nation begins to destabilize, you can't, you can't, I know you can, but you can hardly believe what we're capable of. For all of the outward appearances, just I remember when I was a kid, not quite a kid, I was in high school and then in junior college. I remember I remember when uh, gas, the, the whole gas thing that happened way back then. I remember I remember it's kind of weird, but I remember when there was a reported potential Shortage of toilet paper in the United States of America, the panic it put people into, and now they rushed the stores and began to fight to buy the last rolls of toilet paper. What do you do when there's no jobs? What do you do when a currency fails? What do you do when a whole generation has been conditioned by wickedness, watching slasher films where sex and violence are now completely meshed together in their minds, when violence is just the norm, pornography is just the norm, and that becomes the dominant influence in the culture. You don't want to be in a world when something then happens within that nation or within that world that then allows people to really be the animals that we are apart from God. And that kind of a destabilizing can happen all around the world. And you see it right here. The importance of being an influence for righteousness and not allowing any movement from that standard so that we're an influence for it in this this nation. I remember when President Clinton was... President of the United States, um, please, every Democrat, don't walk out on me, all right? But I remember when he lied under oath, the highest law enforcement official in the United States of America, and he lied under oath and hardly paid a price for it. And I thought to myself, and I wouldn't care if it was a Republican or an Independent or the Green Party or whatever party. It doesn't matter to me. 
You cannot introduce that kind of corruption over and over and over, the abuse of power, the introduction of righteousness, as if this does not have a cumulative effect and that it doesn't end up someplace. Now, we can't change all of that. All we can determine, and that's a big enough task, is determined to be righteous in how we conduct ourselves publicly and how we conduct ourselves privately so the witness of God's righteousness is not lost in a nation. I tell you, I, we are in very perilous times. And I know that the Lord's returning soon. But what is happening in our nation cannot go on indefinitely, nor what is happening in the world today. It has to crash and burn. And man is capable of terrible atrocities. And it is righteousness that keeps us far away from that. And it's the difference between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah at this time. And then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibeathon and uh, they besieged Terzah as uh, uh, as Zimri is now there and made himself king and knows now that they don't want him to be the king. And so he's uh, being laid siege to there in the capital city. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, uh, his cause was hopeless, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and he burned the king's house uh, down uh, upon himself with fire and he died. And so... If I can't rule here, uh, then nobody is going to rule here. And he, and he burned down the palace because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. And so now we have a civil war in, in the northern kingdom. Half of them followed a man by the name of Tibni. He was the son of uh, Jenath uh, uh, to make him king. But half of the people followed Omri. So there was this civil war for four or five years. But the people who followed Omri ultimately prevailed over the people who followed uh, Tibni, the son of uh, Jenath. And so Tibni died and Omri reigned. And so whether he died of natural causes or they, a civil war broke out and, and he was, he was uh, uh, killed in that, we don't really know. But ultimately Omri uh, becomes the king. Uh, over the entire northern kingdom of Israel. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel. He reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. And then he uh, bought the hill of Samaria from a guy by the name of uh, Shemer for two talents of silver. And uh, he felt at this time, I, I, he felt like they needed a new capital in uh, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel for some reason. And so he built a, a, a new city. And the name of the city which he built, he called Samaria, which became the, the capital there, after the name Shemer, owner of the hill. And Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, did worse than all who were before him. So it just keeps getting worse and worse. You say, how can they be worse? But they are worse. 
He did worse than all who were before him, for he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. I could live without hearing his name the rest of my life, except that it drives home a point for me. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he had made all of Israel to sin, there's his his legacy and his tombstone, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now, the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might which he showed, are they not written uh, in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And so Omri, he rested with his father, uh, fathers and was buried in Samaria. And then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. You remember the old song, Ahab the Arab? Anyway, it was, uh, but this Ahab wasn't an Arab. This Ahab is a, a Jew. Listen, I can't help it. <laughs> Things come into your mind when you're up here. I'm not blaming that on God, by the way. Who sang that song, by the way? Who? Ray Stevens, yes. Artist extraordinaire, really. <laughs> K-Tel. So, anyway, here comes a new guy on the scene. His son, by the name of Ahab, reigned in his place. And the 38th year, I mean, look at all this stuff that's going on, just going nice up in the, down in the south. And the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, uh, reigned over Israel in Samaria for a total of 22 years. Now, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, again, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they never had one good king. Not one righteous king. I think they had 19, 20 kings. Not one good king. So when you got a guy come, that comes on the scene, you know, about halfway through their history here, and it says he's done worse than everyone before him, now you're talking about evil in a context of evil. That's what kind of a king you've got going on here now. It just keeps on sliding down. So he was... More evil and it did more evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all that had been before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So he continues the worship of the golden calves uh, and and then uh, And then all of the man-made religious system and all the false priests and all the idolatry associated with that. He does he does everything that the previous kings had done. And it's like, okay, as if that wasn't bad enough, this guy takes idolatry and apostasy to another step and that he took his wife Jezebel. Now, you know, that can't be good. It wasn't a bad name in those days, but nobody's naming their daughter Jezebel these days. Because of this account in the scriptures of what she was like. And so on top of all this other stuff, he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of uh, Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, which was right to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he went in and he served Baal and he worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built there in the capital of Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image, an Asherah pole, a very sexual thing that was used in the, uh, you know, 
worship of Baal. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so here he now becomes uh, the, the new king and uh, nothing looks very good uh, related to him. Ahab's kind of an interesting guy as we kind of go through the uh, passage here in the next uh, couple of, uh, of weeks. As I read uh, his life, I, I, I can't help but in, in looking at his life, because there's just these long seasons of wickedness in his life. And then every once in a while, uh, a good guy pops out. So, you know, he's in there somewhere. And to me, when you, you with Ahab, I get the sense that he was really less of a leader and more of a follower and, and certainly less of an uh, influencer and more of an influence kind of person that person that was his personality his natural tendency seems to have been easygoing and uh, he would just kind of go along with stuff that kind of person there's all kinds of different personalities in the world and uh, some of us are not easygoing at all but we have our problems but this kind of a personality has some problems as well and when a person has the tendencies to be kind of easygoing, be more of a follower than a leader, that kind of person has to be more careful than anyone to surround themselves with um, godly influence, with godly people, and, and not allow themselves to be around people who are going to be wicked because they just kind of follow along in it. Even though he's the king, he's the follower. And he makes just the world's worst mistake that a person can make here. And that in probably the most influential position that a person will give anyone in their life, short of the position that we give to God, is the position of influence we give to the person that we marry. And he marries a woman that is absolutely off the graph wicked. And what this guy needed more than anyone was to marry a very godly woman and someone who would be a, a great influence for God in his life. But he doesn't do that. And, and, he, and he's, his name is Mud and his wife's name is Mud. Jezebel came from Sidon up in the north above uh, 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 Israel. And it was a center for the worship of Baal at that time. And so she introduces now Israel had always from the time of Joshua been engaged in Baal worship here and there a little bit. But it was never had never been become a dominant influence. It certainly had never become institutionalized. And so he marries this woman and then she comes in and she kind of institutionalizes uh, Baal worship in the northern kingdom of Israel and gives it a credibility that it would never have otherwise had. And so now the entire northern kingdom of Israel is going to now follow after the, the worship of Baal. Her influence will become so strong that she will literally murder every single priest of Jehovah that she can find in the northern kingdom of Israel. That's how serious this woman is about turning God's people, the Jews, away from the worship of Jehovah and turn them to the worship of of Baal. And so this is who he marries and becomes the dominant influence in his life. The Bible says, for those of you who are not married, 
and you want to be married. The Bible says that we are only to marry in the Lord, only to marry another Christian, because then we're a godly influence on one another. We are iron sharpening iron and, and um, uh, you know, spurring one another on to greatness related to, to the things of the Lord. And I would say to any of you that are looking uh, to marry, uh, don't don't just look for someone who calls themselves a Christian and the only evidence that you have is that they said that and they have a pulse. That's not enough. I would I would encourage every one of you. And, you know, this whole thing, you know, being an on fire Christian, you almost don't use the term because it's so overused and and so much nuttiness is associated to it. But that's the only kind of Christian you should ever marry. That's the only kind of Christian you should allow to be an influence in your life. But that's the only kind of person you want to marry. Someone who loves the Lord is, will walk with the Lord, whether you would walk with the Lord or you wouldn't walk with the Lord. Someone who is, is growing and is determined to always grow in their relationship with the Lord. That's who we want to marry. So again, we can challenge one another to greatness and godliness in the world in which we live. So I would just say, and maybe I'm speaking to somebody tonight, you don't marry that lukewarm, carnal, good-for-nothing Christian. I'm telling you, don't marry him. And don't marry her. It's just going to be big problems for you for the rest of your life. You wait until that person shapes up and gets a real relationship with God, or you wait until God brings the real one into your life. You don't need to waste your life on... Uh, on that kind of a thing, being dragged down all your life by that kind of person. Now, when they become that after we marry them, there's not much we can do about that. I'm plowing a little bit right now on this thing. But at least we went into it with certain expectations and a certain standard. And so you be careful about that. You aim high. In the Lord, aim high. Aim high for your own life. And then aim very high related to who it is that you make your influencers. He makes a terrible mistake, especially given his personality. A guy like a person who was like a pure leader might have been able to survive. This guy has no chance. Really, nobody does. Nobody should ever marry Jezebel here. But so he does. And then here is Baal worship now becoming institutionalized in the nation. And in his days, that is the days of uh, uh, in the days of Ahab, uh, Hiel uh, of Bethel, he built the city of Jericho and he laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn. In other words, when he started to lay the foundation of the city, Abiram, his firstborn, died. And then uh, uh, with his uh, youngest son, uh, Segub, he uh, set up its gates. In other words, when he had finished kind of rebuilding the city and put the gates, which was always the final part of, of kind of renovating a city all, his youngest son also died. All of this was according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua the son of Nun. And so uh, during this time, uh, he uh, uh, begins and actually accomplishes a refortification of Jericho, which was specifically forbidden by Joshua after God had uh, destroyed it. When the children of Israel had come in to possess the land, uh, Joshua had charged them at that time. We're told Joshua 626 saying, cursed be the man before the Lord. Who rises up and builds this city Jericho, he shall lay its foundation with his firstborn 
and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And so the city of Jericho had been occupied since uh, Joshua's day, but uh, Hael's uh, uh, reconstruction represented the first major attempt to rebuild the city into its former kind of glory. Joshua's prophecy was literally fulfilled and and uh, as he laid the foundation, his oldest son, Abiram, died as the gates were erected. Uh, his youngest son died as well. It seems that uh, that this event is mentioned here associated with Ahab's reign, probably because Ahab had encouraged Hiel to in uh, his desire to, uh, you know, kind of undertake this forbidden task and in defiance of Joshua's curse. And uh, so it's it's brought in here associated with his reign. Uh, Chapter um, 17. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead uh, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So here we have the introduction of Elijah uh, into the biblical record, one of the greatest uh, prophets in all of the Old Testament. And the name Elijah means Jehovah is my God. And that'd be nice to come up and say, hi, my name is Jehovah is my God. All right. I know a little bit about you pretty quickly. Certainly tells us that he had godly parents who had attached tremendous hope associated to his life, that he would spend all of his life walking with God and, uh, and, and living for God. He came from Gilead, which is located on the east side of the Jordan River, which is modern-day uh, Jordan. And beyond that, we don't know anything more about his background or his family or his call to the prophetic ministry. The Bible is silent on all of that. And one of the things that I love about it is he just instantly appears, boom, out of nowhere in the chapter 17, verse 1. Nobody sees him coming into the history of the nation of Israel except for God. And then in the midst of all of this wickedness, I mean, in all directions, all you can see is wickedness in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then, boom, this prophet comes out of nowhere and begins to speak for God. And I think that one of the lessons that is found here is in the confidence that we need to have as as God's people is it is surely as the devil prepares his Ahabs as instruments of his in this world. God is quietly preparing his prophets and his servants. And we look here, you know, to the they looked in that day in terms of how wicked things were. I mean, it, it looked to the left, looked to the right as far as the eye could see. And it looks like looked to them like everything was being lost to evil. And we can have that same kind of feeling today. And we we can't so often we can't see that prophet coming until one day they just explode on the scene and God uses them to be a great influence for him in a, in a cause that looked like it was entirely lost. God's cause and purposes in the world, they're never, not only are they never lost, they're never put in danger. I love the perspective that's brought to my life 
as I pray the Lord's prayer as a model for prayer in, in the morning. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I know I am praying a prayer and asking for something that is going to happen. One day, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom in this world. And I say hip hip hooray related to that. And it certainly makes it very, very easy. It's always been easy to pray for that. It's effortless to pray for that now. And so it reminds us that God's his work is not in any kind of, of danger. He wins. We've read the end of the book as the old saying goes. I remember when I was a new Christian and um, I read everything that I could get my hands on in terms of revival, read all the classics on revival, anything that I knew was in print on revival. And there's a man who's pretty well famous on the theme of revival by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. And I remember reading his book, Why Revival Tarries. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have the quote exactly, but he said something in there that was fascinating. He said something like, um, he said, uh, 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 it'll come to me. So I'm just trying to get the order of it here for a second. Aren't you feeling uncomfortable for me at the moment? Listen, before I melt down, I'll sing you a song. So that's when you know I'm really in trouble. You and me against the world. Sometimes it seems like you and me against. Okay. Who sang that, by the way? Don't you say you shouldn't know. I am woman. Hear me roar. Okay. But Leonard Ravenhill, boy, that's a bad, Leonard Ravenhill's bad to talk about these things in the middle of his name being mentioned. But anyway, he said something to the effect that in that a hundred years of wickedness can be undone in two days of revival. And that's the fact of the matter. God can show up. Any time in his fullness, bring his prophet or prophets or prophetesses out onto a scene and he can couple the greatness of his Holy Spirit with that. And he can turn anything around in instantaneously. And so this whole thing here related to Elijah and, and how he comes on the scene. And I think there's a great need. I think it's one of the great needs in the body of Christ is for the voice of the prophet right now. I think the, the most important thing is the teaching of the word of God. Otherwise, you can't t- you can't test the prophets. And you've got so many goofy people that take the office of a prophet and the gift of prophecy seriously. And they say all kinds of crazy things until the people that really have a gift of prophecy and are true prophets in the body of Christ. They're afraid to identify themselves by that. But we really need God to touch men and women, young and old. It doesn't matter. I don't care who. But that will really rise up and stand up with an anointing upon their life and to speak for God, his message in whatever context or situation that he calls them to do that in. So I love these prophets of the Old Testament here. And I really love Elijah. 
And he speaks something to Ahab, speaks it right to his face. And, and I think it's the encapsulation of Elijah's life right here in the first words that he speaks to Ahab. And he says to Ahab, the Lord God of Israel lives. You see that word as in the New King James may even be there in the Old King James. That word as is in italics. The reason that it's in italics is because it's not in the original. But the translators put it in there in an attempt to help us. And most often what they do put in there and you see in italics does help us to understand the meaning of the passage. Here I think it does more harm than good. Elijah comes face to face with Ahab in his wickedness. And he declares to him, the Lord God of Israel lives. That's the encapsulation of his life. And when a person believes that to be true about God, that's going to produce a certain quality of life, a certain quality of relationship with God. And one of the qualities that it will produce is a boldness in that person's life. I love Resurrection Sunday every year in kind of the calendar of of the year. I love Christmas. I love every Sunday. But there's something about uh, Resurrection Sunday as we celebrate Jesus's rising again from the dead. Easter and kind of what it's called in, in the culture and his rising from the dead. And we're back. The worship team is back and back and we're praying to coming out and everybody's tapping their fingers like this and their toes and everything. Then our God is alive. Our God is risen. We're going to go out there. They come out. They hit the first note on the guitar. All of you explode. I mean, we're just anticipating because our whole heart is just filled with the fact and it's so fresh upon us that God is alive. Our God is alive. He's conquered death. There's nothing that's too, that's impossible for Him. Nothing that's even difficult for Him. That's one thing to believe that. Have it affect our worship of the Lord. Have it affect our lives one day out of the year. It's another thing to be like Elisha. And it's our portion for all of us as Christians to have that be affect us and Every single day of the year where we look and where a person when a person believes my God is alive, the Lord God of Israel lives, we're going to live a different kind of life. We're going to have a, a certain, that quality to our life again, that boldness that we're going to have. But but even more than the boldness, there's going to be faith, there's going to be anticipation uh, about the future. And so Elijah spoke and he lived like his God was alive. First comes on the scene and he prophesies of a drought that's going to come upon the land because of its wickedness. And that drought, he says, is going to last until he prays for the drought to be lifted, which is going to end up being about three and a half years. Now, in those days, when you would talk about the fact that there's not going to be dew and there's not going to be rain and you use the term years as, as Elijah does here, because that part of the world depends almost entirely on rainfall for its water. Then no rain and no dew translated into the mind of Ahab and everybody else who heard the prophecy. Famine is coming. Drought is coming and famine is coming because we're completely dependent upon Rain, uh, rain in order to water our crops here. And so God comes in and he gives this 
uh, uh, warning that is that this uh, lack of rain and the drought and the famine that's going to follow it is coming. Now, it's interesting that uh, Elijah speaks to Ahab and he describes himself uh, there in verse one. He says, before speaking of the Lord God of Israel lives, he says, before whom I stand. The servant always stood before his master. So basically what he's saying to Ahab here is, I have come from the presence of the Lord God of Israel, and I am delivering a message from him to you. That's what he's saying to him. Now, all of this, you say, why would God bring a drought on the northern kingdom of Israel? Well, it was a judgment for their sin. And God had warned in the law of Moses. He had warned that if they ceased to follow him, if they engaged in idolatry and the wickedness that they were engaged in, that he would bring drought and famine upon them to get their attention and redirect their worship back to him. So a little bit more going on here than that, because God takes and he tries to get the attention of his people in Israel not just by bringing in a shortage of food and making them then cry out to him, drawing them close to him. But this was in bringing a drought upon the land. This was a strike at the heart of Israel's worship of Baal as encouraged by Jezebel, because Baal was supposed to be the God who controlled the weather. And so this drought was designed to get the attention of the land of Israel to make them realize Baal has no control over the weather. Baal is a phony baloney God that they're trying to get us to worship here. Jehovah is God. Baal can't stop this drought that God has prophesied. Baal's prophets can't stop this drought that God, the Lord God has prophesied. And so Baal is a big nothing and Israel uh, or, or Yahweh or Jehovah is the true God. Of Israel, And so this is what the Lord is trying to get through to them uh, by warning of them of this coming drought. And so let's do a little Selah right there and stop at the end of verse one. Boy, I'm glad we got into chapter 17. We'll stop right there and we'll pick things up in verse two as we begin to build on all of this. The life and the ministry of Elijah, one of the most exciting uh, persons in all of the Bible. So the worship team would come forward.